Hello everyone, my name is Ed Kemp and welcome to the Speak Up podcast, a podcast for leaders who want to make a difference. The current COVID-19 environment has led to a number of challenges for organisations, including sustaining team alignment, stretched leadership teams and disengaged people. Speak provides CEOs with a tailored and proven approach to sustaining team engagement, encouraging tough conversations and empowering people to deliver outcomes and results. Regardless of the situation businesses face, identifying the critical issues, dealing with the elephants in the room and developing a go-forward plan must happen quickly and repeatedly to drive impactful outcomes. Our experience tells us that whilst embedding sustainable improvements in mindset, behaviours and capabilities is critical, it all starts with getting the team on the same page and engaged. Over the course of Series 1 of Speak Up, you'll hear from highly experienced leaders who will share their views on leadership and team alignment, their challenges, perspectives on what worked, how they've navigated COVID-19 and the cultural issues that inevitably get in the way of being on the same page and staying there. I hope that these conversations will get you asking yourself one very simple question. Am I on the same page with my team? And if not, how can I help us get there? If you're not sure whether your team is aligned, getting curious is the first step. You can also reach out via our website, www.speak.com, to find out how we can help you and your team get on the same page and stay there to optimise performance. Today's guest on the Speak Up podcast is Anita Fleming, co-founder and director at Fourfold Consulting. Fourfold Consulting helps businesses grow and transform through the belief that sustainable change happens when there is alignment between the commercial and human aspects of a business. Before starting Fourfold, Anita spent nearly 20 years in people, culture, strategy, and transformation roles. She's worked across a number of sectors, including banking and finance, mining, and food manufacturing. Anita works with senior leaders to answer business questions about direction, capability, culture, and change. Hello, Anita, and welcome to the Speak Up podcast. Tell me a little about your career, what led you to starting Fourfold Consulting, and Did you encounter any challenges starting up a business after 20 years or so in large corporates? Thanks, Ed. Great to be here. And a good mix of questions to start with. So maybe if I start with my career. So I'm a psychologist by training. I've always been curious about humans and motivation and what makes us tick. I started life off in consulting, actually, a company called The Hay Group, which is now part of Corn Ferry, which was a wonderful kind of training ground on all things related to organizational design because they're well known for their reward practice, but equally on capability. So quickly found my way into sort of leadership, talent and coaching spaces and then found after five years of consulting that I just needed to see the messy side of organizations. Like it was one thing to advise. I was very conscious. It's probably another thing to live with and try and implement that advice. So jumped into in-house roles at five years at Rio Tinto, combination of leadership development, high potential development, and then diversity and inclusion role, and then moved from Rio across into ANZ for eight years, the first six of which were around leadership, talent, culture, engagement sort of space. And then I was fortunate enough to design a leadership development program that gave birth to organisational purpose at ANZ, which was a body of work which was then sponsored by Shane Elliott when he took over as CEO. So that was kind of first four range of all the purpose and large-scale transformation and then I decided after two years of really wonderful work trying to embed purpose in the DNA of the business it was time to go out of large corporates into smaller businesses which was my first kind of giant leap out of the world of large business and I joined a company called Kinrise which is in food manufacturing so it was formed through acquisition in 2018 um, six different companies that have been bolted together to form Kinrise and you know 
blank sheet of paper around strategy, operating model, purpose, new executive team, the CEO had just started a wonderful fast and furious ride where you really had to kind of design things with a lot of resourcefulness and nimbleness. And not for that experience to come back to your question around, you know, starting out my own business. I'm not sure I would have taken the bold step that I did next, which was to go full circle and back into consulting, having had a lot of really rich experience, but also blood on the knuckles from having tried and failed and learned. But certainly the experience that can rise really helped me get close to the business and the much faster iterative dynamic cycles of a smaller company. And when you think about that and how that contrasted to larger companies, I'm assuming, as you mentioned, very nimble because there's not a lot of resources where I suspect that these big companies had significant amounts of people that you could call on to get things done. Correct. How's that informed the way that you and your business partner do things when it comes to the servicing of your clients and the, the managing of the day-to-day workload at a company like Fourfold? So I think we've learned to accept there's no such thing as hierarchy. We've got to be a jack of all trades. And that's been good because, you know, from my perspective, my business partner has uh, grown up in finance and kind of more of the commercial side. But working in a much smaller business, you've all got to be across cash flow and P&Ls and all the rest of it. So I'm finding that that requirement to have breath actually forces you to learn new skills, some of which are really helpful in terms of how we then engage with clients. So there's a real fluidity around how we think about brand development, business management and hygiene factors, but also of equally client delivery engagement. The other thing I think it's probably put in place for us is a respect for good governance. So we also recognise that always flying by the seat of your pants is not not always a good strategy. And and one of the great things about large organisations is having learned through a lot of experience, you know, they put good guardrails in place about how you think and manage things properly and with a level of discipline and rigour. So we've got, a, you know, I think just the right amount of that. And then lastly, I would say we're very thoughtful around ecosystem and the fact that actually you don't need to have all those resources fully locked and loaded in a system, but there's a lot of value in kind of thinking and operating much more like an open talent ecosystem, which means, you know, you can tap into the rich array of skills and experiences in the market to help. Yeah, there's no question. And and Speak, I think, is exactly the same when it comes to a small group of people all hands on the wheel or just doing what we need to do in order to think, get things done, service the clients and hopefully add a bit of value along the way. And certainly in your large corporate life, you've been at the forefront of people, culture, leadership and also talent development for the best part of 20 years. So if you reflect back to that from a corporate perspective, what traits do you think great leaders must have in today's world? Good question. And, and many bright minds have written many books on this topic. Oh, haven't haven't so. they what? And I think, you know, there's hundreds yet to come. But if I think about what I've read and probably, I suppose, more importantly, how what I've experienced, I think there are four traits of exceptional leaders today, and I believe a lot of these are quite enduring. Um, So the first is, I think, a curiosity and learning agility, this notion of always being thirsty for learning and improving and keeping up their game. I think great leaders recognise that that journey never stops no matter how high up the tree you climb. So that would be sort of the first trait. The second one is humility and courage. And I know those sound slightly paradoxical, but I genuinely mean the combination of those two. Humility for the fact that great leaders make mistakes and they know how to admit them and they also know their limits. And equally, they're also able to act decisively, building the 
courage and confidence for people to follow. And at times that decisiveness and courageousness looks like really taking a stance on tough issues. And I think that delicate dance between humility and courage, it's a hard one to do, but when done well, you really notice it. And I think it's a real tempo for the rest of the organisation. The third one I would, and I don't know whether it's the right term, but there's something around sense-making and an outward orientation. I think increasingly businesses are being called upon to play a much broader role in society. And that's everything from correcting fractures in the system that have been historical inequities that have been around for a long time, but also pressing issues like climate change or, you know, COVID response, etc. And I think great leaders are able to recognise where and how to play in that broader system and have the capacity to navigate a much wider range of stakeholders, everyone from investors to consumers to NGOs to government to obviously their own team members. So I think there's something about a system and external orientation that I think is becoming more and more important for business leaders. And the last one is commitment because staying the course is really hard, like to just show up and have that performance edge, creating the right conditions for themselves but also for the people around them to do the jobs they need to get done. So they're probably the four. They're quite intentionally mixed between, I think, some things that are about leading inwardly but also a couple of things that I think are about leading outwardly. You know, it's interesting. They're really fascinating, those four that you mentioned because I think the thing is is that everybody's got their own view on what makes a good leader. And often you could argue there's no right or wrong answer. It's just a matter of, you know, being in a position where you aren't the smartest person in the room and don't think you're the smartest person in the room. Be able to change your mind when you need to. And I think this term of followership and the fact that it's not about you, it's actually about the people that you lead, which is the most important component of leadership. And if we take that into where we are now with COVID and, you know, Lots of Australians are in lockdown at the moment. One imagines that your, if you like, your client base and the work that you're doing is currently from home. Has this challenged you guys and your clients around staying connected and aligned around the things that need to get done in their businesses that you may be assisting them with? Somewhat ironically, I think from a consulting point of view, if I take the question in two parts, the first is what is it meant for me consulting two clients and then maybe what is it meant for clients in terms of managing, you know, the systems that they lead. So from a consulting point of view, in a funny way, lockdown actually equalises the system in the sense that typically when you're consulting to a client, there's a lot that happens in the day-to-day system, the nuance, the intel that they swap and exchange as they live and work together that as a consultant, you're off on the outside. And while we're all in lockdown, actually what that means for consulting is you see the same sizes as your clients do because they're not living and breathing in the systems as they normally would. So I don't think it's directly impacted the consulting side of work. What I think it has done, though, is obviously greatly impacted or impeded, I think, our clients' abilities to feel like they really got you know, they're really close to the wheel in terms of what's going on for their teams, for their customers, for, you know, the wider kind of communities in which they're living and working within. So I think that's definitely an issue is just how do you get really close up to a system when, you know, so much of what you would normally pick up through Intel, you know, walking around, talking to people, you just don't have the same access to. And that's an interesting segue into the fact that organisations play such a significant social fulfilment role for lots of people nowadays. And we don't have that because of COVID. The disconnection that comes from 
an issue like COVID leads to insufficient team alignment, it leads to overstretched leadership and also disengaged people and teams, which is incredibly challenging to manage if you are a leader of an organisation that has those issues to deal with. So talk a little bit about the importance that you place on alignment and getting people on the same page and keeping them there, especially in the larger roles that you've played across Rio and ANZ where they are enormously large, complex businesses with a whole bunch of different people maybe from time to time wanting to do different things. So it's interesting your point about companies and the role they play in social fulfilment, and I think that's true, right? If you kind of go back to what several leaders have talked about, you know, people come together to form companies because it allows them to accomplish something together that they could not do alone. And I think companies will always play that role in terms of creating meaning for people and work as an outlay for impact. And so when you think about large organisations and what alignment looks like within that context, I think a lot of that comes down to um, very, very strong clarity around purpose. And I would add a couple of dimensions to that, by the way, because I think if you can align on the macro topics, that's usually what gives people just enough of a compass to know how to do their work and what really matters. So to me, there are three big kind of alignment conversations with large companies. The first is purpose, like fundamentally, why do we exist? How are we going to deliver financial and social value? Is that a really clear and well understood and enduring sort of narrative for the organisation? The second is values. What does good look like here? When, we, when we're in pursuit of that purpose, what is it that we hold ourselves to in terms of particular behaviours but also decision-making? And then the third is this concept of principles, which is what is right here. How will we navigate complex issues? How will we determine what choices we make when it's not obvious what choice to make? And I think if you can give people clarity on those three lenses, it's actually pretty powerful form of alignment because they can continue to operate within those guardrails even when you're not always physically present, always together, always able to be in conversation. Those three things are so broad with respect to purpose, values and principles. If we just just have a unpack values a little bit for a second because you know you walk into plenty of businesses and they've got their value statements stuck on the wall and then you yeah. turn around and you see people and you go well they're not living their values yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like hang on a sec there's a disconnect here talk about values for a second because I've always been of the view that values are so heavily embedded in culture and culture for me very simplistically is what you do when no one's looking and you know when you start, and I'm sure you've been in this situation where you've maybe had to work with leaders around developing values and around helping the team live them. And so what are some of the challenges that you may have come across in those situations and how, once again, do you pull that back to alignment to make sure everyone's on the same page in these sorts of issues? Yeah, it's a tricky one, right? So I think where a lot of companies get stuck is is they stop at a very high level of describing values and they typically are, you know, broad, relatively undisputable things that matter like respect and integrity and so forth. Like, of course you want those things. (laughs) Um, Who wouldn't? I think when the work stops there, that's when you find, to your point, Ed, like they don't become livable concepts. I think where, where they start to come into their own is when you do the first level of translation, which is, how would we know if we saw it? Like, what would that look like? What would you say? What would you do? How would I? Which is really about jointly describing what those concepts mean. Because even integrity, if I asked you what it meant and I asked someone else what it meant, they would probably describe them in slightly different ways. The thing that matters is 
can we align on what it looks like specifically here because of the work we need to do and the way in which we need to deliver. So I think that translation piece is quite important. But the other bit I would say is putting real grit behind those behaviours because most companies will say, no, we really care about what you do and how you do it. But when you kind of look at and really interrogate performance and reward mechanisms, it quickly swings towards what over how. And I think when you can start to hire for, promote for, fire for, reward for um, those behaviours, they start to really create some kind of depth and weightiness for people go, okay, this actually does matter. It has some teeth behind it. So that would be sort of the ways I would unpack to go from higher order values to kind of tangible, describable, observable behaviours to a way of manifesting in systems and activities and routines that make it real. It's interesting what you say about, you know, behaviours and what you're rewarded for because certainly the banking sector, which you spent some time in, has, has had its challenges over the course of the last decade or so when it comes to organisations perhaps not doing the right thing. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's individuals and I'm certainly not going to ask you to, to delve into this now but we simply don't have the time. But the thing is is that what filters down from the top now, it might not be at the very peak of an organisation with the CEO on the board but different divisions and have different executive general managers and so forth that may be fighting against what they need to get done from a a REM perspective and a performance point of view and how that actually matches with the values and whether it it comes down to cutting corners and maybe doing the things around principles that might just get stretched a bit. And there's a beautiful story spoken and told by the late Clayton Christensen who was one of the world's leading management thinkers and he talks about the time when he was at Oxford and he was playing in their basketball team and the final for the whole NCAA equivalent in the UK was on a Sunday and he promised himself when he was 16 years old that he would not play sport on a Sunday and he made this point about the fact that he had to stick to that decision because if he didn't stick to that decision, he could decide to change his principles and change the values that he had on all sorts of little things which at the time of the decision, actually doesn't mean much. But when you aggregate it over the course of a lifetime, it can mean you're compromising a whole range of things. And it's a beautiful, beautiful story he talks about. And if we think about then going a bit further with respect to alignment in these larger organisations, what have you you seen or described some strategies that you've either seen or been involved in that you've put in place to help teams get on the same page and stay aligned? Because it's one job to get them on the same page. It's a whole other job, you know, to get them to stay there. There's definitely some, call it more mechanical levers that I've seen when applied well can make a difference. So being able to focus on a small set of measures that really define what success looks like and those measures being intentionally designed to pick up on impact in its fullest sense and beyond financial. I think single-minded focus and intentional and proper use of metrics can actually be a really powerful lever when done well. It's often not because KPIs are not often as thoughtfully designed as they can or should be, but done well, I've seen that definitely pull through in quite a powerful way, particularly when you also start to go, look, against these five things, if we win against those, we also share in the spoils, the profit sharing is a really powerful way of having people equally invested in outcomes and then repetition, repetition, you know, just like having a simple set of messages that you just repeatedly share that just become, you know, slowly seep into people's minds and consciousness. To me, those are all kind of 
really important alignment, practical alignment levers. But the other thing I would say is also there are broader sort of pulse checks around alignment, which are just things like are we having conversations early enough? Are we learning enough together where I think you start to pick up whether you're actually reading and responding to the system in a way and correcting together, which are a little bit less mechanical but I think equally as insightful. And, I mean, that's interesting you say that about early conversations because clearly one of the things that needs to be addressed when it comes to alignment are what you call the elephants in the room. If you think about what Amy Edmondson says about psychological safety and what Brené Brown's talked about with respect to having the courage to have the tough conversations. And I'm sure in my career I've had plenty of tough conversations, either I've been on the receiving end or I've delivered a few as well. And I think the one thing which I believe that lots of people, especially in organisations and leaders, need to actually is to learn how to have them because I think they're happy to have them but often the approach that they're having to tough conversations may be not quite the right way to lead in, which yeah. tends to put people on the back foot straight away and become very defensive, where that can very quickly escalate into a, a pretty unproductive argument as opposed to yeah. what potentially could be quite constructive. So have you seen those sorts of things in action in your career? And what are some of the things that you might have done to it, especially considering your experience around people, culture, leadership, and just making sure people are doing the right thing? It's such a tough one because I, I mean, I've, I've thought a lot about like what is it that's getting in the way of us having some of the the healthy debates that really you you would hope right the idea exchange that that drives innovation that drives change that drives you know brilliance in organisations and I think a couple of things one is um, I actually feel like some aspects of how we've interpreted what respect and inclusion and collaboration look like have almost caused us to become more diplomatic, more polite and more focused on harmony than we should be, right? You know, we've misinterpreted what some of those concepts mean. And so I don't know, to your point, you know, I don't know that everyone is up for the heated conversation. I think that's a real, you know, that's really unfortunate because I feel like that's where you get a lot of, you know, as I said, a lot of the innovation and creative ideas. So I do feel like there's a little bit of reframing that we still got to do about the space for good debate the space for good heat as Priya Parker talks about it as well and this idea of idea conflict being good social conflict is the thing that we're trying to you know manage for so we don't bruise people but we actually you know liberate ideas so a couple of practical things for me one is as I said reframing that actually to recognize that when it gets heated it's not a bad thing it's a good thing it shows that people are invested in the conversation invested in making it even better as opposed to, you know, trying to beat someone down. So I think there is something around reclaiming which is quite important. I also think there are practical and small habits that I've seen leaders demonstrate which are really powerful. Some cases are about, you know, when you're putting forward a proposal for endorsement, actually inviting people to go, what is it about what we're putting forward that doesn't resonate that we would feel uncomfortable with. We typically go for, is everyone okay with this? Can we move on? And so I think it's that, you know, very intentional invitation to call people out to share what may not be gelling for them. Um, equally, you know, the notion of devil's advocate is a really practical routine that we've seen leaders and teams adopt, which, again, makes it permissible to share what doesn't feel right to force debate through so I think there's all those sorts of things that I would say you know we've got to reframe heat in organizations and see it as a good thing I think we then need to also 
create the habits and routines that make it more accessible for us to do that. And then equally, you know, recognise when we get some of those things right and wrong in terms of style so we keep having a go. And I think questioning things and creating a safe space for people to put their hands up and say, have we thought about doing something differently? Or uh, Because I, I think that if you can create that, that actually will empower and enable people to speak up, which we all want them to do. Um, Correct. And throw ideas out there which might just be the difference between success and maybe a lack of. One of the things which fascinates me from your experience is do you think that the pressures that are on leaders of large complex businesses are actually understood by the majority of people out there and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about stakeholders, shareholders, the community yeah. because you know often leaders in large organisations are getting paid significantly more than the average wage in many, many multiples and some people would think, crikey, that seems a bit out of whack with, the, with society but I mean you've seen leaders in large organisations up close. I mean there must be an enormous amount of pressure that, that goes to those sorts of gigs. Absolutely and I know when you just look at, you know, the REM reports for large companies, a lot of people kind of are aghast at, at the dollar signs. But when you get up close to these leaders and you understand to your point, just the range of pressure points in terms of the needs that they need to service, the level of information they need to understand and have in their heads about a really, really complex system, the level of accountability they feel and own even when they are 20 steps removed from where the process really hits the customer, for example. I mean, there's just so much about, as I said, navigating the complex stakeholder groups and needs, managing the vast array of information that they need to consume about their own businesses, but also about their competitors, also about the landscape and how it's changing and disrupting and morphing and moving. And then having the ability to kind of sense, make and set direction and be open to adjustment and hold people accountable and manage resource allocation <laughs> and, of course, storytell and inspire and engage and all the rest of it. So, you know, I say hats off to leaders. I think it's a really, it's a tough gig. And increasingly, as I said at the outset, you know, as, as businesses take on more than their mantle, as in they, they actually lean into societal issues. I think the capacity for these leaders to make a real difference is huge um, and they were the, that accountability on their shoulders and I think they should be rewarded <laughs> accordingly. Now, how much I don't know, I don't have a view on that. But It sounds to me like there's a case for joint CEOs when it comes to some of these gigs. <laughs> but, but I have a view on joint CEOs that just confuses the hell out of people, so that might be for another conversation. We're going to switch gears for a little bit before we wrap things up. Tell me, what are you reading, watching and listening to at the moment? What can you give our listeners a few little tips around things that they might want to jump on and have a listen, read or watch? So reading-wise, I'm just such a geek when it comes to leadership and management books. I'm actually reading Humanocracy by Gary Hamill and Michele Zanini, which is a really interesting, to your point around, it's all about busting bureaucracy and just trying to liberate what humans have the potential to do. So that's quite interesting. They've got a lot of evidence around what's caused us to find ourselves in the world that we are today which is kind of uh interesting and then you know how to unravel that so that's the book i'm reading i just finished reading priya parker's the art of gathering which i loved as well um when it comes to music and listening uh the kids 
generally these days take charge of Spotify. So it seems to be a mix between 80s rock and whatever's <laughs> rolling on the charts. So you would probably listen to our music mix and go slightly schizophrenic family, but um, I think that's like the kids' influence coming through. And watching-wise, it depends whether I get to watch stuff on my own or whether my husband's around. If we're around together, it's, it's, it's stuff like The Crown, or things like that, which are obviously very interesting. When I'm on my own, I can't get away from a good chick flick like Virgin River or something in that sort of league. Just remember, listeners, you've got some very, very good tips there. There's no question yes. about that. And I can tell, I can attest with my four teenage children, my gosh, some of the music that I listen to, I don't know whether my parents would have put up with it. I know that. Yes. <laughs> the language is a bit fruity these days. But two more things before we finish. What do you think are the biggest challenges that leaders face today when it comes to managing all the things that need to get managed and helping people stay aligned? I mean, what are some of the things that you believe are their real, really big challenges out there now? So I think it is about with respect to their own business and I think, you know, every company that I've been talking to lately, slightly exaggerated by COVID, but I think even pre-COVID, just recognising that there will be constant cycles of renewal and disruption. So this ability to kind of always be highly alert to what's going on that might change your business and what would have, you know, been a winning strategy, you know, two years ago that just isn't going to be what cuts it now. So I think that kind of sense of openness, but I think also this idea of optionality, I feel like it's getting harder and harder to foresee and predict with great levels of clarity what's going to transpire. And so I think the ability for leaders to civilly approximate, so, you know, taking steps that continue to leave doors open in terms of options, I think that is probably one of the greatest things they can do is just always leaving their businesses poised for more than one path, which is easier said than done. Yeah, and certainly no doubt that COVID has really amplified that issue for a whole host of reasons, as we know. I think the other thing is just much more dialed up doses of empathy at the system level and at the individual level. I think the world is just in a different space for a lot of reasons and I think the ability to tap into and know how to read and manage emotion is becoming a lot more important. Yeah, and and it's an enormous issue because people go through stuff every day and uh, you need to be attuned to that when it comes to outcomes that are being delivered and things that are happening in your day-to-day business. There's no question about that. Yeah. this is a question I ask all of my guests to wrap things up. So you got to do a bit of reflection here, but what do you know now about leadership and alignment that you wished you knew when you were starting your career? <laughs> There's so many things. Um, so let me start with alignment at an organisational level. And I think what I know now is that alignment it's dynamic it's not fixed so organizations are living systems as are the environments in which they operate and so leaders need to be continuously iterating and agreeing and resetting direction and that doesn't mean by the way throwing everything out every time but i think this 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 idea of alignment being a very dynamic concept the second is probably around leadership and the fact that authority and leadership has shifted it's less about control and hierarchy it's much more about influence both within, through and outside the organisation. So I think that's been definitely a greater appreciation for me over time. And then the last one is probably more at the team level, and I, I would say particularly at the executive team level, this notion that, you know, the nirvana of high-performing teams, like a lot of people say it, just because you have a team doesn't mean you get there. I think when you get there, it's because there's just such 
a level of clarity about what the collective job is of that team, which goes beyond the individual accountabilities of members of that team and goes into the white space that sits, you know, within those slices of accountability. So I would say there are probably the three things, alignment being a dynamic level kind of conversation, leadership shifting much more to influence than control and team alignment being very much centered around clarity about is there actual work we have to do together and how do we do that well. Anita Fleming, it's so nice to see you. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us on the Speak Up podcast. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Ed. Thank you for listening to episode one of the Speak Up podcast, a podcast for leaders who want to make a difference. Speak supports CEOs and their teams to optimise leadership and performance with a tailored and proven approach that builds trust and delivers outcomes. To find out more, visit www.speak.com, spelled S-P-I-I-Q-U-E. Please keep an ear out for the next episode of the Speak Up podcast and please subscribe and share it with your friends. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe and stay curious.